continue our study in First Peter, and uh, this is uh, actually lesson number or message number ten. Excuse me, eleven. Uh, message number eleven from Second uh, Peter, and we're going to look at the the destruction in false teaching. And just so that you can refresh just a little bit. Uh, in the preceding verses of Second Peter, Peter has been in. so in the in the first part of Second Peter, Peter teaches us how to recognize false teachers. And last time we we looked at uh, these prophets who profited from their profiting, and we looked at that uh, three different times to look at the characteristics of false teachers, how to recognize the false teachers. And the last lesson, in fact, was called recognizing the wolves. How to, how to recognize a false teacher that comes in among the sheep. And Peter is still very much focused on those false teachers when he gets here. But now what he's looking at is the consequences or the wake that they leave in their destruction. Now I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 2 verses 17 through 22. And uh, normally we stand. I just had you guys just sat so I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, and just let you sit there, but uh, this is from the Lexham English Bible, follow along in your Bible. But he said, these people, and he's talking about the false teachers, are waterless springs and mist driven by a hurricane, for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved. For by speaking high-sounding but empty words, they entice with desires of the flesh and with licentiousness those who are scarcely escaping from those who live in error promising them freedom, although they themselves are slaves to depravity. For to whatever someone succumbs, by this he is also enslaved. For if after they have escaped from the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in these things and succumb to them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment that has been delivered to them. The statement of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing herself returns to wallowing uh, in the mud. So the first, we'll kind of split this into three parts and the first thing that Peter talks about are the targets of destruction. Who is it that uh, has been uh, targeted for destruction? And, and you know, I'm, I just remembered uh, this little picture of a snake down here in Deadly Doctrines. Uh, I was in Marble Falls, Texas a number of years ago, and I was with the mayor of the town that I lived in, and he had invited me to go out and help uh, set up the deer stands. It was right before deer season, and so we went out uh, to Marble Falls, Texas, and, and Llano County, and we uh, uh, a lot of hill country and uh, kind of bare in places. But uh, so we were setting up deer stands, and I had a walkie-talkie, and he had one, and so I was communicating with him, and we were doing things in different parts of the property. And uh, I walked across a, a large rock. The rock was probably uh, 20, 25 feet high, and I, I couldn't get him on the walkie-talkie, so I thought, well, I'll get higher. Maybe the signal will be better. So I climbed up this rock, and as I stepped over a crack about that wide, uh, a, a rattlesnake, who turned out to be about 7 to 8 feet long, uh, hit the bottom of my, my boots. Now, thankfully, one of my uh, cousins, who was a, himself a Baptist preacher, had given me his Dan Post boots, and they had really pointy toes. I called them pig stickers because you think they would have just stuck in the pig if you'd ever kicked one. 
And uh, I got to the top of that, and the problem was I had to come back down. So I finally had to shoot in that crack and worry about ricochets coming out, but I wasn't going back down until that snake was dead. Uh, and the bad thing about snakes is when they're dead, they keep moving for a long time. And that's, that's true of a lot of false doctrine, too, is that even if you get rid of the false teacher, the damage they do lives on for a long time, and it keeps moving and affecting people. So how are the targets of false teachers impacted? Well, there's two things that really help this, as Peter calls them, an accursed brood. That's what he refers to them as. Uh, this accursed brood of false teachers is able to make an impact for two reasons. One is they're very deceptive. Uh, they sound good. People love to believe what sounds good. It's stuff that makes us feel comfortable, stuff that makes us feel hopeful, stuff like that makes us feel better. We'd rather believe that than the truth that might be uncomfortable for us. And so it's a deceptive thing. Uh, uh, Paul told Timothy in the last days, people would heap to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears. In other words, teachers who would say the things that they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. And the second is that there are some people that are just more vulnerable than others. Uh, I've seen uh, people that started out very well in the Christian faith, appeared to be strong in the Christian faith, were able to speak intelligently on the Christian faith, and yet their theology went astray because they said, I feel like there's got to be something more. And then they, they go after the something more when the Word of God didn't substantiate that. Or they uh, get involved in intellectual pursuits and they get caught up in the philosophies of men, which Paul told the Colossians that we were to beware of those vain philosophies of men. What are we supposed to do instead? We're to keep our mind on, on God's word and on God's throne. And we need to focus and check every thought that comes uh, and would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And we need to cast down those thoughts. And some people, like uh, immature believers, believers not thoroughly grounded in the word, or people who are very prone to believe their own intelligence rather than the Bible, are particularly vulnerable. So how do Christians become targets for false teachers? Because Christians are led astray too. Well, one is just by not being founded in sound doctrine. That's why we read in 2 Timothy 2.15 a while ago that we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why that's so important. Uh, target Christians evaluate their feelings above the word of God. I, I remember uh, one sermon I preached and I explained a passage in Ephesians very clearly and uh, one of the deacon's wives in this little East Texas church told me, she says, I don't care what the Bible says, says I know what I've experienced. Now the problem with that is experience can be interpreted in a lot of ways, but the Bible is inerrant and infallible and it's always correct. We're not to evaluate the Bible by our experience, we're to evaluate our experience by the words of Scripture. And that was the problem that that lady had. And, and uh, some people, they just say, well, I, you know, I feel there's something more. And then they bring in the philosophies of man and the thoughts of man, and they don't verify that these thoughts go in line with the Word of God. Uh, and this, by the way, this is why a lot of people in Christianity have problems with the doctrine of the security of the believer. That idea that once we're genuinely born again, uh, Jesus keeps our salvation. 
And scripture is very clear about that. We're told very clearly that we are kept by the power of God in 1 Peter chapter 1. If I'm kept by the power of God, the only way I can be unkept is a greater power comes off. Jesus said, you are in my Father's hand and no man can pluck you out. That means you can't pluck yourself out. No other person can pluck you out because once you're genuinely in the Father's hand, you can't pluck it out. Uh, The Bible says that whatever God does, he does forever that men should fear before him. Uh, and we are, as the writer of Hebrews says, we are perfected forever by him who has sanctified us. So, and, and I could go on, we could, uh, we could go all day long on the doctrine of the security believer. Most of the time when I find somebody that doesn't believe it, it's because they saw someone that looked like a really good Christian. Maybe it was even a Sunday school teacher. One of my friends told me this story that the Sunday school teacher in his church taught him for years, and then he left his wife and went off with another woman and didn't go to church anymore. He fell away. And so, you know, he says, well, right there, that shows that we, didn't, we aren't saved forever. And I said to him, well, I, I, I see a couple other options. You know, one of the options is that he was religious, but he was never had a true relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between being religious and going to church and having a relationship with Jesus Christ who changes our life forever. The other thing is it is possible for Christians to backslide. Uh, and to make mistakes, to take wrong turns that sometimes have long-lasting consequences. But here's the thing. If you're genuinely a child of God, you'll be miserable until you repent. Uh, but we can't interpret doctrine based on what our Sunday school teacher did or what somebody else we knew did. Because experience can be interpreted a lot of ways. What we have to do is look to one absolutely reliable source of truth, and that is the words of of Scripture. Uh, So we've got to be checking everything with the Word of God. We need to be like those Berean Christians that search the Scripture for themselves to see whether those things be true. So don't take what I say on face value. Check it against the Bible. Don't take what the pastor says on face value. Check it against the Bible. Now, Peter calls these false teachers springs without water and mist driven by a storm. In both cases, uh, someone's looking for a benefit. They go to a spring and they, they're expecting to get a cool drink of water. Ever since I was uh, knee-high to a grasshopper on the uh, Highway 175 uh, close to Frankston, Texas, there's been a little pipe coming out the side of a hill and spring water's been flowing. And they, they, the highway department actually had to widen the highway there so that people wouldn't stop on the highway to get the spring water. You can now pull off and people take their big five-gallon bottles that you'd normally buy full of water to put in your water cooler. And they'd go up and they'd, hold, they'd put it there and let the spring water fill that up. They got free water and it was good water. And uh, I've often stopped there when I was on that road and I was a little thirsty. And, you know, if I, today if I was going down the road, I'd probably have my Yeti with me. And I'd put my Yeti under there and get some nice cold spring waters there. But what would happen if you believed it was there, you were told it was there, there was a sign telling you it was there, and you went up and nothing was coming out the pipe? Uh, that would be disappointing. Uh, it would be disappointing to me because I've, I've stopped at that spring for over 50 years now. Uh, so that would be a disappointing thing, and that's what there is. And, and then sometimes you see clouds coming, you think, oh, good, we're going to get rain. And this happens to me often in Mansfield. You see the clouds coming, your grass is brown, and you think, oh, we need some rain. I'm not a huge fan of rain anymore because it makes 48 hours before I hurt everywhere, ever since my two back surgeries. But, but, now, but we need the rain. 
and, and you see the clouds, you think, oh, we're going to get some rain. And you listen to the weather forecast says, oh, it gets rain. And then somehow or other, everybody else around you, but your, your driveway never even gets wet. It's, it's disappointing. And, and he says, this is it. The problem is, is it's, it's being hypocritical. He says, the false teachers are offering you freedom, and they themselves don't have freedom. That's the problem. They, they don't have what they pretend, and the pretense is intentional. Now, by the way, I believe there are two kinds of false teachers, and I'll talk about this again in a moment. I think there's some people who just teach falsehoods because they aren't grounded in proper doctrine. They, they, they are intellectual, but they haven't verified what they're saying with the Word of God. I think there's another group that are intentionally false teaching, and this is the group that Peter is directing our attention to you right here. They have an intentional pretense. They're promising freedom, but they don't have anything real to offer that believer. In other words, it's kind of, you come to my theology, do, do my religion, accept my teaching, and you'll be free, and then the person never is free. So this condition, again, it's not the same as a believer who's just struggling uh, in their faith, making it real. Listen, all of us know certain Bible truths that we fail to live out in our own lives. Okay, so for example, we know that there is a Bible truth that God will give us victory over sin. But sometimes there are certain sins that just grab hold of us and they hold on and we don't have a victory over the sins and we keep going back to the same sins over and over again until we actually take it out, confess it, and forsake it and do away with it. And that's hard. It's hard doing away with stuff that you, you have a hold on. So right now, uh, Judy and I are doing a a seven-day cleanse diet. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. I really can't tell you how happy that makes me. Uh, it's, it's not a fun diet. And so some of the things I, I normally have and I would like to have, I, you know, uh, I can't have right now. And the fact is, I'm pretty sure when the, the seven days are over, on the eighth day, I'm going to go out and kill something that says move just so I can go after it. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's tough. You know, it's hard giving up those things uh, temporarily, even if it's for cleansing. But when we have a sinful habit, they're even harder to get up. The three most sinful habits, by the way, in America uh, are outlined in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is, is sexual immorality and pornography. People that get into pornography become addicted to it, and they can't break their addiction to it. Uh, the lust of the eyes, or, or excuse me, the lust of the eyes is greed. It's wanting, it's wanting stuff that's not ours. And gambling, uh, you, there's the reason there's a Gamblers Anonymous group, because gambling addicts people. They, they keep seeing the promise of reward, and they keep playing for the reward, and then they win a few dollars, and they stay there another day and lose everything that they want. And then there's the pride of life, which is bitterness. That, that is believing that we deserve better than we got and we get mad when people don't treat us with the respect that we think they should have or people don't treat us with uh, you know, the, the proper courtesy they should have treated us with or God didn't do something for us we think he should have done and we get bitter at those people or we get bitter against God. And bitterness is the, in, in 40 years of ministry, I can promise you, that 95% of all my counseling has had to deal with people who had bitterness in their lives. It's the single most common reason for that. So these teachers offer freedom, but there is no freedom to go. And Peter says 
there is a coming judgment. Now, Peter says this over and over again. 2 Peter 2, 1, chapter th- uh, verse 2, 3, 2, 9, 2, 12 through 13. He says there is a coming judgment. And here he talks about a, a blackness that's a, like an absolute blackness. The blackest black you can imagine. A gloominess, a uh, word he uses in verse 4. It's a darkness that's reserved for these people. Uh, and, and the people that you, you see this kind of same darkness in Jude 13 where they're fallen uh, spirits that are locked up in prison. And so this blackness for the false teachers presumably is hell. And, and uh, Stephen talked this morning about some different theories about where hell is. Is it in the heart of the earth, which is what most Bible scholars believe? Uh, is it in that, that place? And of course we know hell is even a temporary place itself because at the end of the Bible it says, And death and hell and the sea gave up the dead which are in them, and these are cast in the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Uh, at least in hell you can look forward to a momentary getting out to hear the judgment that throws you in the lake of fire, but there's no getting out of the lake of fire. Uh, that is the second death, but th- there's a blackness. False teachers who are intentionally leading people astray very often do not have any relationship with Christ, and this is their judgment. Now what is the weapon they use when they target uh, either people who are just listening to the gospel and beginning to consider it, or they target Christians who are a little bit on the, the immature side because they're vulnerable. Well, it's their words. It's human speech. That's the, that's the most effective weapon there is. Y'all remember that little, little ditty that we said when we were going up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, if you believe that, you're an idiot. Uh, words hurt. Words hurt longer than sticks and stones. Your wounds, your physical wounds can heal, but the words may sting for years and years to come unless someone seeks your forgiveness for about that. So as in every heresy, a heresy, by the way, let me define that word because you're going to hear me use it. A heresy is simply a truth out of balance. Somebody takes a truth and takes it out of balance. So for example, if if I tell you, I, I was listening years ago, I we lived in seminary apartments and the walls of the seminary were pitifully thin. You got to know your neighbors far too well. Uh, the best illustration, I, I remember this, some of you heard me tell the story, is that uh, my wife, of course, is an accomplished musician, and uh, a couple moved into the apartment next to us, and, and uh, the, the wife was trying to learn how, Miss Sherry, Miss Sherry was trying to learn how to play the piano so she could be a good pastor's wife. And so she's in there, and she's stumbling her way through what a friend we have in Jesus. And finally, she makes it all the way through what a friend we have in Jesus without making a single mistake. And because we could hear so well between the apartments, my wife uh, was in the bathroom. If you had the medicine cabinet open and their medicine cabinet that was open, all you had was a single sheet of metal between the two apartments. And so she opened the medicine cabinet. She clapped loudly, and she says, Do it again! Do it again! Good job! And at that moment, Brother Steve flushed the toilet on the other side of the wall. Uh, and make sure you know what you're applauding. Uh, but at any rate, I was in this seminary apartments one day, and one of our neighbors was listening to a recording of some preacher up in Arkansas. I think he was what they call a free will Baptist preacher, but he was listening to this sermon. And I heard the man say clearly on this recording that all you had to do to be saved was believe in Jesus. You didn't have to repent at all. You just had to believe. And I thought, wait a minute, Luke 13 Verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus himself said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. 
You can't tell me that you that there's no repentance necessary when Jesus himself said there was. That's an important part of our faith. We have to repent in order to come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So heresy, you know, that preacher's intention was you really need to believe. And he might have been well-intentioned. But then he got the truth out of balance and said, you don't have to do anything else, including repent. Now, Truly, salvation is a work of grace, and it doesn't involve our works at all, and it doesn't involve any sacraments of the church. It requires that you receive Jesus Christ, but it also requires that you repent of your sins. So teachers take aim at their targets. Peter says they, he uses a word here, they make a sound. It's a word he also uses in verse 16. It's an empty sound, and the word empty here means futile, worthless, without results. He uses the word boastful, which is swollen. And by the way, this is what they call a hapax legomena. It's a word used only once in the New Testament. Peter uses more unique words and vocabulary than any other New Testament writer. And so here he says they're swollen, boastful words. Such high-sounding words sought to impress people and deceive people, but they're actually worthless. And Peter compares them to the, the neighing and braying of a donkey. Kind of like Balaam's donkey, the sound he made before he turned around and actually talked to Balaam. But it's the, it's, their words don't have any profit in them. Their false teachers seek to lure the unstable by baiting or enticing to their lust, basically. The desires of human nature. And it's, it's like if you, if you believe what I'm saying right now and you give a $50 donation, I'll send you a prayer cloth and within 30 days you'll have an extra $1,000 that God will bless you with. And there are people that will believe that from their TV preachers. And they'll send in a donation and they get their prayer cloth back. And they pray and they pray hoping it will come. Or they, they see the preacher say, if you'll touch the TV screen right now, you'll be healed of your epilepsy. You'll be healed of your emphysema. You'll be healed of this. And, and yet, you know, how many if, of hundreds of thousands of people that might be watching, sure, there's going to be some people with that disease. And yet the preacher can claim to have a word of knowledge from God that clearly he doesn't have. But it appeals to those people's desires to feel better. Or they simply teach a kind of grace that all you need to do is get your ticket punched to heaven and you can live like you want to. Be free. Don't, don't look at the judgmental uh, people that say do this and don't do that. Don't worry about the Ten Commandments. Well, you know what? Thou shalt not kill is still a pretty good idea. The teachers themselves are licentious and they try to encourage other Christians to be the same. They offer freedom, but in reality they're encouraging slavery. So I think there's two groups of people here, as I mentioned earlier, that Peter is saying are in view. Uh, there are some people that are just beginning to consider the claims of the gospel. In Peter's day, there were people that were hearing the word. Uh, they weren't spending a whole lot of time in, in, on, on YouTube and on Facebook back then. So they would hear the word preached and they would hear people talking and they would consider the claims of the gospel. And after they considered the claims of the gospel, they, they thought, well, does this have anything on my life? And they might just be thinking hey, maybe, maybe there's some truth to that thing. And then these false teachers come along and claim that these folks can have a relationship with God that'll take them to heaven, but they can still enjoy their sensual lifestyle. 
You know, imagine the Corinthians. The Corinthians actually had temple prostitutes in the, the temple to Diana or Artemis, depending on which name you give her, that was, was in uh, Corinth. And uh, imagine being told, oh, well, you need to come to Jesus Christ, but it's okay, you can still visit the temple prostitutes. That's essentially what false teachers were often doing. You can still hold on to that. All you need to do is this. In, in Taiwan, a lot of uh, people are told that all they have to do to be Christians is add a statue of Jesus and Mary to their altar that still has their other gods and still has their ancestral tablet where they worship their ancestors. It's called animism. And they, it's like you don't have to change anything, just add this. The point is, is that false teachers tend to appeal to our desire uh, and usually attack people uh, that, that they're, they're seeking, but they're not quite there. And these individuals often make a religious commitment, but never repent. I've seen a lot of people walk aisles in a church, and then you look at their lives five years later, ten years later, you can't tell there's any difference. And I am convinced that you cannot meet Jesus Christ without it changing you forever. I've been standing on a ladder working on lights in the ceiling before and thought and I knew the switch was off but didn't know there was still a hot wire there. And I've touched it and uh, believe me, it changes my behavior. And if a 120 volt line will change your behavior, you can't meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords without it changing your life forever. It absolutely has to if you have a real relationship with him. But I think there's a second group here, and I believe this might be believers who are recently converted because Peter says that they've been escaping the, the worldly lust and the, the lives of those who are in error. And that sounds to me like people that maybe were recently converted. They've just now uh, come to Jesus Christ. They haven't quite figured out how Christianity fleshes out in their life and, and daily life to put what they have positionally into practical uh, daily living. And they're not really grounded in their faith. And so they're very vulnerable. They're easily led back into sensual habits by the false teachers. Uh, probably about 35 years ago, as I remember, maybe a little bit longer, the Mormons sent an entire huge team of missionaries to Dallas, Texas. And, of course, Mormons always go out by two, and they're hoping that the two will meet one. And they've been trained. They have a little book. Uh, in Mormonism called uh, Investigations. And that book has a two-person dialogue, and one Mormon says this, the next Mormon says this, and if you ever get up with a couple of Mormon missionaries, they quote directly out of the book. They've memorized it. And they, they say this, and then you, they ask questions that you basically can only say yes or no to. And then the other person says something. And they control the conversation very skillfully by asking questions that, that give you limited choices, limited responses. And then they're backing each other up. And at the time that they came to Dallas, they were converting 600 Baptists a day to Mormonism. And that's tragic. Uh, that... Uh, uh, you know, every time they turn over a shovel of dirt in Israel, they prove something else in the Bible. They have never found a single thing mentioned in the Book of Mormon in any architectural digs anywhere in South America where all this is claimed to have happened. There is no evidence for the Book of Mormon. And the book contradicts itself. You know, it says if you believe in a God who changes, you do not believe in a God of miracles. But what did, what did Brigham Young say? As God is... Man will become as man is, God once was. They believe in a God that changes. 
And yet their own book tells them we can't believe in a God that changes. So I think there are people that simply lack a good foundation. This is why I'm so encouraged by the families who have gone through Faith Bible Institute here. And I'm so grateful for Robin Boffman for uh, instrumenting that over the last several years now. And Linda Townsend doing that before her. Because in three years you go through every book of the Bible. You go through every major doctrine of theology. And hopefully you wrote your notes in a book and hopefully you held on to the books. Because it was great learning. It's a good foundation so that you at least have a working knowledge of the Word of God. And then that's a good start. It's like getting, y'all know what a learner's permit is for your driver's license, right? I remember when you got that and somebody could drive with you. I think FBI is like a learner's permit that now you have the skills to go on and studying the Word of God for the rest of your life. But, you know, 50 years later, I'm still learning about it. I'm still getting new truths by studying God's Word. But the problem with new Christians is that they're often easily led astray by intellectual arguments. We like to believe people who sound smart. Now, there's, I think, again, types of false teachers. There's some who intentionally teach to make a profit from the people to whom they minister and they're in it for themselves. And then I believe there are others that simply have a lot of good ideas and a few really bad ideas. And that's why no matter who the preacher is, no matter where you hear him, no matter who the speaker is, who the Sunday school teacher is, you need to double check what they say with the word of God. Uh, I was double checking Steve this morning. He said something I didn't agree with and then I went and thought and I thought, you know what? I believe that my whole life, and it might not be right. You made the statement about uh, uh, no Gentile authors, and I've always thought Luke was a Gentile, and I went and did some study, and actually the evidence is better that he was a Jew. Uh, that, was, that was pretty enlightening to me. So, in fact, every book was probably written by a Jew. It's a Jewish book. Uh, I thought that uh, you know, Luke would have caused some consternation when Paul visited the temple, but it was Trophimus and not Luke that caused that problem. So Luke, in all reality, and a lot of people say, well, he was a Gentile because he's a physician. Well, Jews have doctors too. So in reality, Luke was very likely a Jew. So I'm, I'm glad he said that, but I wouldn't have learned anything if I hadn't double-checked him. So I am double-checking you, but you did a great job this morning. Uh, and I hope he's double-checking me right now. So we need to do that. So there are teachers that just have wrong theology because some of them are wrapped up in their own intellect and what they believe or what their philosophers believed or they've studied Greek philosophy and they're wrapped up in that instead of what the Word of God says. And either one of these groups can, can damage things. So there, there are some modern-day heretics. Now I could pull out a whole long list of people. I just want to pull out a few examples that I find puzzling. And, and you may not think these people are heretics and you're entitled to your opinion. I'm not necessarily calling them heretics, but I just want to use some examples of things that kind of bug me. So for years and years, and he's still on the air, Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, I remember an uh, interesting, very charismatic uh, speaker, uh, very accomplished speaker, decent singer, decent musician, uh, and just very popular. But I thought it was odd that for years Jimmy Swaggart publicly denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He does not believe God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
which the scripture clearly teaches. And we even know that because God put the Trinity in creation. There's only three kinds of time, past, present, and future. There's only three dimensions to space, height, length, and depth. There's only three kinds of energy, uh, binding force energy, light energy, and kinetic energy. There's only uh, three continuums in science. There's time, there's space, and there's energy. Uh, which energy translates to matter, if you understand what Einstein taught us. And so the, the, even creation, you know, you can only do three kinds of things with H2O. It can be water you can drink, it can be an ice cube in the drink, or it can be steam that comes out your, your steamer in the morning to get the wrinkles out of your clothes. Okay, there's only three things you can do with water. There's not a fourth form, and that's true for every element on the periodic table. So what was fascinating about this to me is the Trinity is clear so much that Paul said that the invisible things of him are clearly seen in the, in the creation from the foundation of the world, even the, his eternal power and Godhead, meaning even the Trinity should be evident in creation, and it is. And yet people struggle with that truth, and he publicly denied it. What's interesting to me, he, he's publicly denied for decades now the Trinity of God, and yet he was never censured by his church for denying a biblical doctrine. He was only censured by his church for spending time with prostitutes. Apparently spending time with prostitutes is bad. Having a wrong biblical doctrine, not so important for a pastor. So I, I think that's odd. I think the Word of God should have been even the bigger thing. Benny Hinn. Now, the, Benny Hinn's had a recent change of faith, if you haven't been aware of this. He preached for many, many years the prosperity gospel. In other words, you believe you'll, you'll have lots of money, you'll be successful, you follow God, everything is going to be good and rosy. And now he has admitted that his own doctrine that he preached that was wrong has damaged Christianity. I'm not even going to go into how he practices healing and how the people turned up to not really be healed later. Uh, but his own nephew, uh, by the name of Costihin, uh, said this about him. He says, he claims to be a healer, but only heals where there's money, music, and atmosphere. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't take his healing to poor nations and heal where nobody's watching. Now, why not be more missionary about it? So I think there are a lot of these people, and we can sit here and probably name 40 more from modern day quite easily. But the point is, is that they're still around and they're intentionally misleading. Now, let me talk about the other kind of thing to be aware of. I am a big fan of C.S. Lewis. I want you to know that right up front. I like reading C.S. Lewis. I, we, our kids grew up on Chronicles of Narnia, okay? Love those books. There's a lot of great symbolism in those books. I think that every Christian probably ought to either read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis or read Lord Falgren's Letters by Randy Alcorn. They're two different flavors of the same thing. But basically, it's a letter from one demon to another demon on how do I attack Christians. And it's written fictionally, and it's written in the style of these short letters, one demon writing the other, and this demon writing back, and you hear the responses, and this more senior demon says, oh, no, don't do it that way, do it this way. And it's a very revealing expose of how the Satan attacks us and defeats us so we do not live victorious Christian lives. Great book. Uh, Mere Christianity, probably one of its most popular books, points out a lot of hypocrisies that are in uh, modern-day Christianity. But C.S. Lewis had a few problems of his own, uh, not the least of which was his, his marriage and his leaving his wife. But let me just list a few of C.S. Lewis's theological errors. 
he did not believe the Bible to be inerrant. So if you start believing the Bible's got errors, then you can pick the parts of the Bible you want and pick the parts of the Bible you don't want and say, oh, well, that's got error. No, this is true. And it's like going to a cafeteria. You go down the line in Luby's and you pick out the things you want, but you don't accept the whole counsel of the Word of God. There's a problem with that. Uh, he viewed the Protestant Reformation as avoidable. He says that didn't need to happen. Uh, even though his beliefs became largely Protestant, he never left the Church of England, even though his beliefs were no longer aligned with them. He, he allows for people in other cultures to be saved by whatever that culture's uh, idea of a Savior might be. And yet we're told by the Apostle Paul, how can they be saved un- unless they hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel unless someone be sent to preach it to them? Because it's very clear in Scripture, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. So we can't. We can't do away with that. He also opposed the idea that Jesus took the penalty for our sins upon himself at the cross and that he died in our stead or in our place. That's called the substitutionary atonement where Jesus died as my substitute and God vented, God the Father vented his wrath upon my sins that were now on Jesus Christ because the Bible says that Jesus was made sin for us. He became a propitiation. He became, the, our sins were embodied in him and God the Father actually turned his back on God the Son so that Jesus Christ cried from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because the Father could no longer look on the horrific sins of all mankind that were now embodied in his Son hanging on the cross. He died in my place. He took, as I explained it to little kids when I'm sharing the gospel with them, Jesus took my whooping for me. That's, that's substitutionary. I don't know how C.S. Lewis could deny that, but he did. And he believed that you could reason yourself in Christianity. In other words, if, if I reason with you long enough, you'll become a Christian. But let me tell you something I've learned from 40 years of pastoring. I can reason people all day long. I can give them solid arguments for believing the gospel. And some of them never repent. You know why? Because Jesus said that no man can come unto the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. You can't reason yourself. You have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. That's why before you, don't, don't worry about being super smart and super logical when you're trying to share your faith with someone. Just share your faith with them, but do this first. Pray. Pray that the Spirit of God will move on their heart to show them their need of Jesus and then share however simply, however uneducated, however imperfectly, just share with them the difference Jesus has made in your life and then leave it to the Holy Spirit to draw them to Jesus Christ. All you can do is share, but it's the Spirit's job to draw them. So, you know, the thing is, we need to have spiritual discernment. There's nothing wrong with reading C.S. Lewis if you're grounded in the Word of God. And if you can recognize these errors when he talks about them. Kenneth Magnuson, who's a professor of Christian ethics at Southern Seminary, he sees a, a lot of the errors in Lewis, and yet he requires his students for the ethics class to read Mere Christianity, because it's a great book on the hypocrisy of many Christians. He says this, To be sure, Lewis is not orthodox on some important matters. I assign reading from a range of authors who are worth engaging. I'm happy to have students read one of the most important apologists of the 20th century. Lewis is not always right, but he's nearly always worth considering and engaging. I think that's a pretty good comment. He's not always right. 
He's got a lot of errors, but he will make you think. It's okay to read stuff that makes you think as long as you're rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And that's the key. So the question is, are you one of those people who is rooted and grounded in the Word of God? Do you have discernment? And how do you cultivate that? Well, taking FBI is a great way to cultivate that. Spending time in daily reading your Bible. And so if you are going to read C.S. Lewis, read your Bible first. If you are going to read um, some other Bi- Arthur Pink or some other Bible commentator, read your Bible first. And discern, make sure that every thought you test against Scripture... Here's what John Piper, who's a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and he's a Reformed uh, theologian, which means he's a a real big Calvinist. Uh, But John Piper's a good Bible scholar, and he he says this, Lewis is not a writer to which we should turn for growth in a careful biblical understanding of Christian doctrine. There is almost no passage of Scripture in which I would turn to Lewis for exegetical illumination. His value is not in his biblical exegesis. Lewis is not the kind of writer who provides substance for a pastor's sermons. But Piper loves reading Lewis because Lewis makes us think. Lewis makes us ponder uh, the hypocrisies that we might have. Lewis, and he just chronicles an Arnia, makes you think through the symbolism of who Aslan the lion is and what Aslan does. And I, I think it's remarkable because if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, it, it sure looks like Aslan lays down his life and then gets it back, and, and it looks like a substitutionary atonement, and yet Lewis himself didn't believe in that. So the point is, I'm not picking on Lewis. I could pick, pick a number of other writers, but this is one that I've read a lot of over my lifetime, and I I've, I've in, have enjoyed reading. So it's just one example for many. But with any human speaker, any human writer, any human teacher, you need to evaluate everything that comes from their pen, everything that comes from their mouth, and check it in the light of the Word of God. Because here's the deal. Men are flawed. I'm more flawed than most others. But I noticed a while ago, so two of the songs that Brother Steve picked this morning... When I go into our software that puts the slides up, I usually just type the title of the song. It finds it. It puts the words in for me so I don't have to mess with that. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, just a, recently, one of the hymn, online hymnals it connects to, we've lost the connection to it. I've got to call tech support and figure out what's wrong because our fees are paid up and I have membership and the username and password are right. It should be pulling the song date over. But two of the songs he picked weren't in there, so I had to hand type the words in. And, and the reason we do that, by the way, is not so all of you can look at the slides and just sing off the slides. We do that because there are people online, and although our online sermon got interrupted this morning when one of the servers blew up. Uh, but it's so that the people online who are from home can sing with us. Because I think singing is part of worship we need to do, not just when we're in the building, but we need to do out in private too. I, I would hate to have worship without singing. And to me, it's not preparation for worship. It is worship. Uh, especially those beautiful hymns that are based on the Word of God itself. That's the highest form of hymnody to me. But anyway, I was typing one in, and so I noticed on that last song that we sang, the song that I'd never heard before and that I learned today, and I hope we sing again, that, you know, somehow or other, when I was trying to type begin, the G, the G got left out, so it said being instead of begin. Well, it's a typographical error. You know, you know why we have typographical errors and stuff I type? Because I'm imperfect. And you know why I preached the whole sermon one time and confused Belshazzar with Belteshazzar? It's because I'm imperfect. 
And there are sermons uh, for years. For years, uh, that Bible verse that says, he that hath friends must show himself to be friendly. I preached it wrong. I preached what the plain English said to me. If you wanted friends, you need to be a friendly person. But that's not what it says in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says there are acquaintances. And if you want a lot of acquaintances who are not close, they're not close to your heart, they're not close to your spirit, but they're just the kind of people that would hang out at the water cooler with you. It says if you want lots of acquaintances to hang out with, be evil. So the word that is translated friendly in some of our Bibles is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means evil. So in other words, you want a lot of buddies at work, hang around the water cooler and tell them about the shenanigans you did on Friday night and how you got drunk on Saturday and the party you went to and what immorality you got involved in. And people will stand around and listen. But then that verse goes on to say, but there is a friend and it uses a different Hebrew word for friend, which means a close friend to your heart. He says there is a different kind of friend that sticks closer than a brother, but to have that kind of friend you need to be righteous. Jesus is that friend that's closer than a brother. Uh, some of you here today are closer to me than my own brother is. And I love my brother, but we talk about, because of his lifestyle and, and places they go, the things they do, I maybe get to talk to my brother two, three times a year if I'm lucky. I would love to just spend weeks on with him. He's a neat guy. Uh, but uh, I don't get that opportunity. I've got a lot of you that I'm much closer to because not only do we share the same faith, but we're together. We talk. We can interact. Um, so, but I preached that verse wrong for a whole lot of years. Uh, I preached that uh, verse in Genesis wrong for a whole lot of years where it says uh, that uh, where God tells Eve, he says, your desire is going to be to your husband, but he shall rule over thee. And I've heard that preached all my life, that that means the woman is going to want to run the house. That's the, that's the part of sin. She wants to rebel against authority. Her desire is going to be to be in charge. And, and yet he's going to be ruling over you. And it's going to create conflict. And yet I haven't noticed that many women who really just want to be in charge and who want to take over. There are a few of those, but I know I haven't had that problem with my wife in 40 years. Uh, and yet, I have since learned that the Bible means something totally else. It uses the same words, desire and rule, when God is talking to Cain about his problems with Abel. And basically, he says, sin desires you, but you should rule over it. And what, what he's saying is, sin wants to have a relationship with you, but you have to, you have to rule over it. And basically, what, what that passage means when God tells that to Eve is men are going to start treating women like they treat sin. If they're, so in other words, what do you do when you're tempted? You should stop the temptation. You said, you know, no, I don't want that temptation anymore. And you know what, our, what we do to our wives very often when we're challenged by them and they're not agreeing with our decision? It's kind of like, no, my way or the highway, let's stop this conversation. End of, end of subject. We cut them off because we're supposed to cut off sin. You know what else we do? Uh, we can claim authority uh, over Satan and his temptations because of who we are in Christ. And what men will often do rather than listening to their wives is simply claim their authority over them. Basically, we treat our wives in this, with the same reactions that we should treat sin with. And understanding that helps me understand how I need to change my communications with my wife. So I have preached things that were wrong. And I will probably preach something again that is wrong. And I have probably... Steve, I probably said that Luke was a Gentile before, so I'm going to repent of that today uh, because the Bible doesn't actually support that idea. So what do we have to do? We've got to be grounded in the faith. We are flawed, and that means that because men are flawed, anything that we write or say can be flawed too. So what are the techniques of destruction? Just very quickly, verse 19, 
Peter talks about this, is that he says they promise them freedom, although they themselves are slaves of depravity, for to whatever someone succumbs, by this he is also enslaved. So the techniques of false teacher are to go after the naive, the people who are not well grounded, not well founded, not sound in their doctrine. Uh, it's like a 300 pound man selling diet books. He promises you that this diet will work, but he doesn't have this truth in his own life. I almost put pictures of two of my doctors up here. So I, I go to a doctor in Forney, Texas at Forney Wellness. His name's Dr. Corey Rice. And uh, he is a functional medicine doctor. What that means is, is rather than treating the symptoms, he finds out what the cause is and he helps you remove the cause of what's making you sick. And he is a marvelous doctor. But he's a, I've never seen another doctor like him because he, he comes in. He's in his, I would say, late 30s. He comes in. He, he works out on weights six or seven days a week. He, he actually can't not work out. It, it's something he has to do. He comes in, he's, he's fit, he's trim, he's got good muscles, he's got clear eyes, he's, he, everything about him is working. He tweaks his own health with nutrition all the time. He practices good nutrition. I've never seen a doctor that looked that healthy before of all the doctors I've had in all of my lifetime. And this is guy is the healthiest doctor I've ever met and he helps you get to that same place. He's, I'm convinced, added years to my life. The other day, though, I went to a cardiologist whose name I won't use here. Uh, it's supposed to be a really good cardiologist. And I had echocardiogram in my heart because trying to figure out if everything's okay. And I went to the cardiologist and he came in and sat down. I'm pretty sure this guy is over 300, probably 325 pounds. And he sits back and his cheeks are that much wider than my face and big belly. And we got talking and he was fascinated by the fact that my wife and I like to scuba dive and that we enjoy going down 82 feet in Playa del Carmen and spending half an hour diving with bull sharks that weigh 500 pounds apiece. And he was just incredulous about that. And, and then you could tell he was starting to think about scuba diving. And then he said, you know, you know, what requirements are there to becoming a scuba diver? And I said, well, you got to take the class and you got to do the test in the pool. And then you go to dive a couple of days in the lake. I said, it only takes about two weekends. Uh, but I said, there is a swim test. You've got to be able to swim eight lengths of a pool back and forth. They don't care if you swim it on your back, swim it on your stomach. You've got to be able to swim it without flippers, without a mask. you just got to be able to do eight lengths of a pool. Or, you know, and and uh, I could tell. And he's like, you know, I should think about doing that. And to myself, I thought, I don't think you can make it from one end of the pool to the other in your current shape. And, and you know, he's a great doctor from what I hear, and he probably is very competent at prescribing medicines, maybe even doing surgery, uh, diagnosing heart problems. But the reality is, would you rather take advice from a doctor who is fit and trim in the very picture of health because he practices those things himself, or a guy that doesn't practice good health, but he can tell you what's wrong with you? It's a matter of credentials. So I'm going to listen to this guy and I will take his knowledge for what it's worth. But there are people who have no victory in their own lives and yet they claim to be able to give you victory. And, and what it says here is he says, to whatever you succumb, whatever you give into, you become a slave of that thing. We can get slaves really easily. We can choose. When we yield to sin, we become a slave. Romans 6 says it this way. Do you not know that to whomever you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves under whomever you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? When we submit to sin, we make ourselves a slave of sin. Slavery doesn't just mean being owned by another. It means it's the mastery of our will by another. And Jesus wants to free us. Jesus said it this way. 
Truly, truly, I say unto you that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the household forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you shall be truly free. So how does all this wind up, verses 20 through 22? Well, there's judgment day coming. Make it short and sweet. Peter says, For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are again entangled in these things and succumb to them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, having known it, to turn back from the holy commandment that had been delivered to them. And then he talks about the dog and the pig. And this is a, a problematic passage. So we have to think, what is, what is this destruction? A lot of people say, well, this means uh, people are sent to hell. Uh, but there's actually no reference in those verses to eternal punishment. He just says the latter end is worse than the beginning. And he, he picks two examples. He says if, if you wash a pig, the pig will go back to wallowing in the mud. That's still true today, by the way. And then dogs. I don't know. How many of you have ever had a dog? Okay, if you ever had a dog, you've already seen this. Uh, I feel sorry for you cat people, but that's another subject. Um, but uh, we did have one cat that I liked. I've only had one cat in 58 years I cared about. Uh, and he would daily leave a dead jackrabbit on my doorstep. That was another thing. But, but dogs, when they're sick, they'll go out and they'll spit up and they'll vomit in the yard. You know what they do later? They go back and lick it up. After all, it was yesterday's food. It's probably still good, right? Uh, and you, you think, why in the world would a dog do that? But they do. And so for, for a Jew to be called either a pig or a dog was like the, the highest form of insult to them. And Peter is saying that when a person who's just escaping from those who are living in error or those who have already escaped the corruption of the world go back to the very thing that they escaped, go back to their sensual sins, they're like a dog or, or a pig. They're simply returning to their true state. Dogs always go back to their vomit because they're dogs. Pigs always go back to the mud because they're pigs. And that's what happens every time. And he says, if you're not truly born again, you're always going to go back to what you were. But he's also, I think, giving a, another warning to Christians, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But people are just considering the gospel, and then they're led astray to a religion that allows them to keep their sin and yet claim that they're saved, are become even more a slave to their sins than they were before. They might have made a, a confession of faith. It was a religious act, but they become ever more in bondage to their sin. They're less able to hear the word of God because now their hearts have been hardened. They thought they received it. They abandoned it and they've returned to their former life and it's that much harder to be truly born again later. And when that knowledge of the true gospel was rejected, the end was a deeper corruption. They're more entangled than they were before. They presumably might have a more severe degree of punishment because now they've rejected the gospel after that they heard it. Indeed, it would have been better for them never to have heard it or to have known. But what about believers that get deceived? What about those people? What happens to them? Is it true that someone who is genuinely a believer and gets called away to a false teaching is their latter end worse than the, than the former? Well, again, Christians who don't know the word well, they can be called to an intellectual but unbiblical faith. They can turn to a set of doctrines that excuse and endorse sensuality. And those new believers will find even less pleasure and fulfillment in their sins than before they're saved. Let's, let's, let's be honest. I don't like saying this because some of you might hold on to the wrong idea. But let's just admit this one thing. A lot of sins are pleasurable. A lot of sins give people pleasure. 
there's there's no doubt. Uh, I, I was I was I used to be a chaplain in a fire department, and uh, I was up one day in the firehouse, and I was uh, had been doing some marriage counseling with one of the firemen, and then I went to talk to the another fireman, and I knew this other fireman much better. He actually was a member of the church that I pastored at the time. And he had been married for 25 years, and uh, after 25 years, his wife was not quite the, the, uh, the skinny, trim, beautiful woman that he married. Things had changed, and, but still had a beautiful face, beautiful smile, and he loved her. And he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, I would not trade five minutes of pleasure with another woman for the 25 years of marriage I had. And I thought, you know, I've never heard it phrased that way, just a comparison that any pleasure that sin offers is short-lived and temporary, and it's not worth giving up a lifetime of blessing. And I I really like that. I really appreciated that. Um, And so I think that a lot of believers that get called into a faith with Jesus Christ, and then later they start backsliding and they start doing some of the same sins again, one of the things they're going to discover is that there's not as much pleasure in that sin as there used to be because Jesus Christ makes us miserable when we sin. The Holy Spirit pricks our conscience when we sin. And we can ignore it and we can go over and you can get to a place in your life that you have seared over your conscience and you can't hear the Spirit of God anymore. But I believe God tries to make us miserable until we repent and so that we enjoy him instead. So this group has to them all the knowledge they need about Jesus Christ that that could give them liberty and life. But when they go back to their former lives, they lose their testimony. They lose their eternal rewards. They might still go to heaven as Christians, but they're more miserable than before their salvation uh, because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit They get into great spiritual bondage and they fail to enjoy Jesus Christ. So the the summary of all this is that there is an end coming. And that's the subject of the next message is what happens when the end comes and when will the end come and how does it look. We need to just be founded strong in the word so we recognize false teachers and we can have spiritual warfare more effectively if we know who our spiritual enemies are. We know the techniques they use. And we know what the end result of the message is. So what should we do? Brother Steve comes to lead us in a song. We just need to learn to discern between truth and error. And the best way to do that, even if it's reading the well-known writings of well-known authors that are often touted in Christianity, is to check every single idea with the Word of God. Check it with the Word of God. It is the source of life and faith not what your preacher says, not what the book says. Believers should focus intently on God's Word, and they should read that book more than any other book. And, and, and if you're going to read C.S. Lewis or Arthur Pink or anybody else, you should be reading the Bible three times more than you read that. Keep that healthy ratio of focus on the Word of God, and then prepare to teach and disciple others.